Hello, you're listening to the first episode of the Russian Context Podcast, in which we want to put Russia in context again. This podcast is brought to you by the Nova Gazeta, one of the few independent newspapers left in Russia. We will release new episodes a couple times a month, where we are going to speak about the most significant texts on everything important happening in Russia today. Please support independent Russian media and follow us on whatever platform you hear this. We would also appreciate your like and comment if you're listening to us on YouTube. Russia keeps on attacking independent mass media and internet platforms. Today we are willing to speak about how the means of repressions are changing, about how we lose our freedom on the internet, on our way making it sovereign in three chapters, with an introduction and a conclusion. Introduction Russian laws are easy to be broken. For example, LinkedIn has been blocked for five years now, since it had broken the rules of Russian users' personal information storage. The law about Russian citizens' personal information transferring came into effect in 2015, and this LinkedIn story was the first major censorship, and this law comes to be the beginning of repressions against media. Chapter 1. Where YouTube made Russian authorities angry. YouTube in Russia isn't just a video hosting. It's the last place where millions of people are still have a chance to watch videos with oppositional opinions and criticism towards the Russian government, whilst Russian television being full of propaganda, tales about Putin's greatness and West world's awfulness. Let's be honest. Russia can't survive without Putin. Our politics system is yet underdeveloped and imbalanced. Unfortunately, it still lacks a responsible opposition, strong enough to win the elections and keep the country safe. That's why YouTube is a problem for our authorities. The president's spokesman calls on zero tolerance against YouTube, since two videos by propagandistic RT channel have been banned in Germany for spreading fakes about vaccines and COVID-19. Kirill Martinov, our politics editor, writes in his column, quote, Sovereign Runet took place during the parliament elections, and now we are doomed to live in it. And indeed, YouTube is not the only victim of Russian authorities. A few days before, because of the smart voting list being published, and the smart voting is Mr. Navalny's strategy on voting recommendations, Google documents were also being blocked along Russia. Later, Nova Gazeta's website was under DOS attack, and after massive social media outage on the 4th of October, Russians thought that that's it. The sovereign runet is here. Our columnist, Sergei Golubitsky, explains what are the possible consequences of Russian pressure on social media for users, how long will it take to build our firewall or it have been already built, and is it true that Russian government is capable of crushing every social media they don't like? Each decent government tries to put pressure on its citizens, and they want them to think the way they shape the reality for them, and they implement different approaches uh, that's true, but the in essence, it's the same thing going on everywhere. If we're talking about Russia, uh, then uh, this began some five years ago with the law of Yarovaya, which started this slow shifting 
toward national internet, from internet to national internet, Chinese way. So the social networks, which are under pressure, especially these days in the beginning of autumn 2021, again, it's not anything new. It's just the, the aggravation of situation from the part of governmental bodies, both in Russia and the United States. Uh, because uh, there is another player in this game. We live in a so-called surveillance capitalism. And uh, that surveillance capitalism envisions constant pressure basic users suffer on behalf of uh, corporations which control this social media and the internet and the government. So it's a double pressure. The second question uh, was how many more steps are left there until we succeed in turning internet into a kind of national intranet, Chinese vibe. There are no steps left, actually. We're already in there. It's a it's a dynamic process. It lasts for five years in Russia, for more years all over the world. And we're moving in that direction. It all depends on the ability of the Russian government to um, technically realize their needs. Uh, because Chinese are richer and they had a lot of support from the American corporations. But as I said, we don't have to, to live in, in a world of illusions. We have to understand that the pressure is doubled. Uh, it comes from both sides, from the governments and from the corporations. Corporations implement their own view uh, and they have their own agenda they follow and they worship money and they do everything to extort as much money as they can. Selling our underwear, selling our personal data and the governments have their own agenda. It depends on the current situation and needs and views of the political elites in each country. And they shape the reality in a way to please these elites and implement bans and restrictions on the social networks and internet in general. And the third question was, is there any positive way out of the situation or we have to just uh, accept it? Just green and bear it. Well, we don't have to green and bear it. We, uh, there is a way out, a positive way out, but it's not where the majority of people think it is. It's, uh, it's not in the reality itself. We have to abandon this reality of the, uh, of web version two with this unbearable, shameful uh, public bargain I described earlier. And we have to shift away from it, move into another reality. And that reality exists, is out there for five already years. And it's called the centralized web or web three. And it evolved into a state which is uh, quite comparable to the quality standards we witness in our traditional Web2 internet. That is to say, in the decentralized internet, today there are social networks, there are messengers with real P2P encryption, not a fake one like in Zoom or Telegram, but a real one. We have email clients, uh, we have Instagram analog, we have Twitter analog. Everything is there in the decentralized web. And that's a place where no one 
can uh, exercise influence, exercise bans, exercise, uh, forbid something or ban something or just uh, in opposite, tell you what to do, what not to do, what to watch, what not to watch. It's completely decentralized and uncontrollable. The, none of the governments can come to Web3 and close down a server or close down a site or wipe out any contents because there are no sites. and There is nothing they can close. All the contents is decentralized and spread among, uh, between uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of computers all over the world, in all the countries. And that's the way out. That's the positive way out. We thank Sergei Golubitsky for his comment. Chapter 2. Where Russian law prohibited commenting. There is this law in Russia which forces every social media to identify and delete all the illicit information. Besides, there is also a list of dissemination organizers, entering which the mass media automatically by their own means must convey to the Federal Security Service all the comments users leave. There is almost no way to quit this list. This is why all popular websites of Russian independent media don't have a comment section, whilst small regional ones are regularly being listed. If a media refuses to convey the information, sanctions are being put which may lead to a full website block. Dasha Kozlova, our politics correspondent, says Today, based on data from Roskom Soboda, there are about 300 dissemination organizers in the list. And sometimes it's hard to see any logic in their selection. Dasha, please tell our listeners how it works technically. Why must media must convey the information by their own means? And is there any way to quit the list? Technically, data about readers who leave comments on the site should be transmitted to the Federal Security Service via special encryption equipment. However, we still cannot talk about the technical details of the data transfer process because the necessary equipment has not been developed. Probably it will be able to be created only by 2028. Because we live in Russia, the laws are formulated in favor of the security agencies. In fact, the purchase of this equipment for the media is a really serious problem. It's very expensive. Now its possible cost is estimated at about 25-30 million rubles. The media doesn't have extra money for this. The law doesn't uh, prescribe a way to exit the register if the media has already entered it. Roskomnadzor, or Federal Media Watchdog, says that it will be possible to get out of the register only in case of liquidation of the legal entity or death of the founder. However, inclusion in the register can be challenged when Roskomnadzor uh, has just sent a notification that the media should independently enter the register. For example, the Kaliningrad portal Rugrat, after receiving a notification from Roskomnadzor, refused to enter the register and removed the feedback form and contacts from the site. After this, Roskomnadzor filed a lawsuit against Rugrat, but the court supported media. Thank you, Dasha, for your comment. Chapter 3. When news is fake, if Prosecutor General's office thinks so. Still, there is more to come. 
In Russia, if Prosecutor General's office thinks that some piece of information on the internet is fake, then it is indeed fake. For instance, a deputy in Taimur, Mikhail Ivanitsky, posted on Instagram a video of empty counters in a store in Hatanga, a town in Krasnoyarsk region. The post had been spread by mass media and after that, the federal media watchdog came and demanded the press to delete it. Ivan Zhilin, our special correspondent, writes in his article, quote, Every bad news now can be claimed fake. Ivan talks on how we can break this logic and what points we can use. How can we agree a text with Prosecutor General's office? It is absolutely unclear what points we can use to prove that empty counters are real, because a video of them doesn't convince the prosecutor that there are indeed no goods in a store. I mean, we are in a completely desperate situation when, for instance, you show somebody a book and you say, look, it's a book, but then they say, no, it's a vase, and then they make you delete from your social media profile or your website, if you're a journalist, any information saying that the book is a book, because from their point of view it's a vase, and because the prosecutor have power to claim that the book is a vase. Plus, we don't know the range of things, you can call them what they are. Only recently we faced the demand to claim fake some negative piece of information. But it can go worse. For instance, some official's son can run some business. You may write that he does have a business without giving any personal evaluation. But if the official doesn't like this text, and if they would nicely tell the prosecutor that the son doesn't have any business, then the story may appear to be claimed fake. I mean, we are completely disoriented what can and what cannot be said in Russian Federation. Now, speaking about how we can agree reality with the prosecutor. It seems to me that in advance of publishing some text, you should send one straight to the prosecutor general's office and ask them if they agree that prices are 10 rubles up. And they would think and decide either they're up or not. And then, with a signature and a stamp, you are able to publish the text. And if later somebody in the office changed their mind, you have a right to go to the court with the paper from the office and say, here, I have an agreement that the news is true. Maybe it's the only way how you can fight for a fake, but true news. Thank you, Yvonne, for your comment. Conclusion The law about foreign engines works with just about the same logic. There is also a list which is filled with Russian independent mass media. If you think that it works just as in the USA, that's not quite true. Being listed can be a threat to your work, and the reason for this sanction may be a one foreign grant. We are talking to Kirill Martinov, our politics editor. Kirill, what is the future of digital repressions and is there any hope that they're gonna end? As we in Russia live under censorship, YouTube at some point comes to be the main place where freedom of speech still remains. In 2019, YouTube's audience in Russia surpassed the audience of main federal TV channels, and today total audience of the hosting reaches 44 million users. And this is a huge problem for our government, since it seems like today's Russian authoritarianism doesn't coincide with free thinking of 44 million people. And Russian laws are already written in such a way 
so that the Kremlin and the authorities have every right to lock the access to YouTube anytime. Still, they lack courage to do that. It was during parliament elections when the authorities showed their ability to filter the traffic of specific internet resources and how they use their equipment set under the program for establishing sovereign runet in the last couple of years. And in general, I think that the 19th of September in 2021 was a game-changing date for Russian segment of the Internet. We used to live in free net we inherited from the beginning of the century, but now we find ourselves in sovereign runet where the authorities can lock up any Internet platform at their random will. We are used to think, and fairly enough, that the Internet can help to provide freedom of speech, human creativity, cooperation and something good in general. But China's and now Russia's authoritarian experience shows us that these digital tools in dictators' hands do great job strengthening the government's power and keeping the citizens under their thumbs. And unfortunately for us, Russian power has great possibilities. There are big IT companies such as Yandex plus digital banking with Zbear as its frontman keeps growing. And the authorities persuaded people to use Gososlugi platform, which provides a variety of city services online. And all these in total gives the government tools to spread censorship and control citizens' personal lives. These tools are comparable with ones in Soviet Union, but back then they needed a lot of people and money. Censorship becomes cheaper when it is digitalized. And the question about the reaction of Russian civil society is still open. I think we are only on the way of realizing the reality and our further actions. This fight is only about to begin. This was the Russian Context Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we would also appreciate your feedback on our email what's new at novagazeta.ru. My name is Denis Nikulin, and I thank my producer Nadezhda Yurova and the editor Kirill Martinov. Last weekend, we were celebrating our editor-in-chief Dmitry Muratov winning the Nobel Peace Prize. That is a great honor for us, and we want to thank the committee for their choice. We will continue delivering true news and preserving the freedom of speech. Thank you for listening. Till next time.